Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. You may be seated. Uh, just to start out by pointing out the obvious, if you're looking at your bulletin, it says that Father Brett Kroll is going to be preaching a sermon on unafraid of discipline, unafraid of God's discipline, which is an amazing title. But I'm not Father Brett. Um, so Father Brett is a priest in another church in our diocese whom we love very dearly and who I was super excited to get to hear come and preach this morning. But Father Brett lost his voice, as in like no voice, can't talk. And if he got up here, it would be very dependent on the Holy Spirit because he would not be able to communicate verbally. Um, so... You get me. Uh, He let me know uh, this weekend that he officially could not come. So it's a bit of a quick turnaround. Uh, So I'll be extra praying that what is of the Holy Spirit, you know, would would remain and what is of me would not. Um, So you get me again. Um, But last night I was thinking about what to do, um, whether just to preach an old Advent sermon from several years ago or to focus on something else, but as I looked at Luke 3, um, what Claire just read, and the ministry of John, which was completing what we talked about last week, there's something about it that just really surprised me and drew me in. And I think it does lead to some pretty profound truths. So even though I didn't have the time to fully develop these truths and really study them, I want to lead us to them this morning and then see what the Holy Spirit does with it. Does that sound good? Um, Amen. Would you pray with me? Holy Spirit, you are the teacher. Your word is the word. All we do is bear witness to it. And I pray that we would all gather around your word this morning. And Holy Spirit, we ask you for your ministry to minister the word of God to our hearts, to speak to each of us individually what we need to hear this morning ways that you want to love us this morning through your word. And so, Jesus, I especially ask for your grace and your mercy to preach. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now before I point out what surprises me, let's walk back just through this snapshot of John's ministry in Luke 3. If you were here last week, we studied the first bit, uh, kind of this intro uh, in verses 1 to 6. And then in verse 7, what we get, it's kind of like a day in the life of John's ministry. Luke really wraps him up at the end of Luke 3, and so this is really a snapshot of what John's preparatory ministry was like preparing the way for Jesus. So, what's a day in the life of John? First, in verse 7, he begins by calling people a brood of vipers. (laughs) Guys, this is his first line, Um, and this really just makes me laugh. Uh, Oftentimes, preachers think of really catchy really accessible, inviting first lines. You know, like you finish praying, you're like, in the year 1944, there was a man, and immediately you're hooked, you know? John's beginning of his ministry begins with him basically saying, you brood of vipers, um, which seems very offensive. And on top of that, we can tell from comparing Luke to the other gospels about the type of crowds that came out to Jesus that these were actually the religious elites. So these are like Pharisees and Sadducees who he's calling out here. That's how he begins. And then he shakes the foundations of the things that gave these people the most security. 
Verse 8. Open up with me there, because we're going to be walking through this. Verse 8. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourself, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This is a huge thing to say to the Jewish religious leaders. It would be like saying in today's world, don't for a second think that you can stand in the judgment just because you're American or just because you think you're politically on the right side of history or because you go to church or whatever it is. He's saying that outside of true repentance and belief in the Messiah, which is fruit bearing, everything else is shakable. And that's what he's doing. He's shaking things so that it's felt. And this reminded me, after last week's sermon, we talked about John's ministry. Uh, Our parishioner, Leah Lackey, sent me a quote, which I think she posted on uh, Slack as well. I think his name is Alfred Delp, right? I don't know where Leah is, but Alfred Delp, yes. Um, Listen to this quote. It's about Advent, very similar to to the ministry of John. There is perhaps nothing we modern people need more than to be genuinely shaken up. Where life is firm, we need to sense its firmness. And where it is unstable and uncertain and has no basis, no foundation, we need to know this too and endure it. Isn't that a great quote? So he shakes their foundations. Then, as they're cut to the heart, he calls them to reform their lives. And that's when we get that beautiful paragraph where he's like, man, if you've got two coats, you should give one away to that guy who doesn't have a coat. And if you're extorting money as a soldier, you need to quit using your position to do that. If you're lying as a tax collector, stop doing that. And he calls people to reform their lives. Then he tells them that the coming Messiah will baptize them with the spirit and fire. And that he will separate the wheat from the chaff, that he has a winnowing fork in his hand. And that the chaff will be burned in unquenchable fire, which is intense. And then, how does the whole story end? Where does this get John? Jail. He gets thrown in prison, which if you're tracking, you're like, well, I could see that coming. You know, like this guy was bound to get locked up, right? What a guy. What a ministry. This is so interesting that this is what Luke focuses on for John's ministry. But here's the fascinating thing. Look at verse 18. And I want you to fill in the blank. So actually look at verse 18. After all this, here's Luke's commentary. So with many other exhortations, he preached what? Good news news to the people. Luke calls this good news. (laughs) But even more, look back at the very beginning at verse 7. It says that he was speaking to all the crowds who were coming out to him. Crowds were flocking to him. So not only does Luke call this preaching good news, the people liked it, which is maybe just as weird. They were drawn to it. And notice that even after he goes after them, which what I think is the most intense first line ever, calling people a brood of vipers, you would expect people to leave, right? I'm I'm getting out of here. But the opposite happens. He goes after these people, and they are cut to the heart, and they lean in even more. It's after John says that first stuff that the people say, what then shall we do? 
How in the world is this message attractive good news? For me, that is the nugget here. That is the X marks the Holy Spirit spot, we should dig there bit of this passage. And again, I'm not going to be able to get into it completely, um, but that's what I want to draw to your mind this morning. Because Luke is not joking here when he calls it good news. Luke is not dumb. Luke is very smart. He is calling it good news. It is good news, and people are attracted to it. So what is going on? Here's three things that I think are maybe going on, why people are being drawn to it. And I'm sure you could add more, and we'll go from there. But first of all, I think people were drawn to John himself because he was different. Everyone is used to hearing people give speeches and preach and get behind megaphones, but it's usually because they want your vote or because they want your money or because they want your support for something, right? John was different. John was able to be so challenging and so clear because he didn't need anybody's vote. He didn't need anybody's money. He wasn't even, as we know, afraid of death or being thrown in prison. His whole life was about pointing to something bigger than himself. And that made him impervious to manipulation and intimidation. And I don't care who you are, that kind of selfless and secure passion is attractive, right? Last week, we talked about how we can get enmeshed and entangled with the world, if you were here or you watched. And I think John just exudes an untangledness. He exudes a sense that he's not entangled in the the nastiness of the world in any way. And I think people saw it and were drawn to it. So I think there was something about drawn that drew, drew people. Second of all, I think people were drawn to the truth. Um, John was shooting them straight. John is somebody that definitely would have been the first person to go, the emperor definitely has no clothes on, right? He's just that guy. And the people could tell, and I think they liked it. The classic sermon illustration, and I'm certainly not the first preacher to use this illustration because it's the Bible's illustration for it, is of doctors and health professionals. Every one of us wants a doctor to shoot us straight, right? Right? Not one who lies or a doctor or a nurse who covers things up about us that might, might make them uncomfortable, uh, them uncomfortable or us uncomfortable if they said it. And I've been in hospital situations where I've experienced both types of bedside manner and I appreciate the people who compassionately tell you what's true. And this is actually the analogy that the Bible uses when it talks about prophetic and pastoral witness. The prophets were meant to give an accurate account of the health of God's people. That's a part of their role. But sadly, there were many seasons where false prophets would come into God's people and they would preach a false truth about the people and almost always it was the same lie, which was, as Jeremiah and Ezekiel say, quote, peace, peace, when there is no peace. In other words, The false prophets don't tell the sick people how sick they are. They just say, no, we're all good, you're good, everything's fine. And in so doing, in a famous piercing phrase from Jeremiah, Jeremiah says that the false prophets, by not pointing out what's true, heal the wound of the people lightly. 
meaning they see an issue, but they don't address it so that it can be healed. This has always been the nature of false prophecy, and it still is to this day. We're good, everything's good, we're fine, everybody's great. But it's unloving, it's destructive, because it covers up sickness that leads to death. John is doing the opposite here. He's loving the people, he's preaching good news because he's preaching what's true about the world and about the culture. He's giving an accurate assessment of things and I think the people could sniff that out. I think they were drawn to it. Third, I think people were drawn to the Messiah. This is the most important point. If John's ministry was just about being nonpartisan and calling people out, it would just be cantankerous doomsday preaching, right? We have enough of those. Um, But John's ministry was chiefly about him pointing to the coming Messiah. And this is what verses 15 to 17 is all about in this passage. It's all about the one who is coming and who is greater, much greater than John. I read uh, yesterday uh, that the little thing about the, the strap of his sandal, apparently there was like a rabbinic phrase about what disciples were supposed to do for their teachers, that, what, that a disciple was to do everything a slave would do except for undoing the strap of the sandal, like that was too much. And John's saying, I'm not even worthy to do that of the one who's coming. So he's pointing to somebody who's so much bigger than he is, one who will judge evil righteously, forgive sins, and again, to go back to verse six, bring salvation so that everybody can see it. And this means John's calling out of the sickness of God's people and culture was geared to get people ready to behold the Lamb of God and to be healed. Um, there's a guy named Leslie Newbegin who's written a bunch of really awesome books. He's a missionary theologian type. And he has a quote that I love about the church, which says that the church is to live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. Not a great quote. Let me read that again. It says the church is supposed to live in such a way that it provokes people to ask the questions to which the gospel is the answer. And I think John's ministry did that for people. It pointed out, it stirred up in people questions to which the coming Messiah was the answer. His, even his preaching of repentance was pointing out sicknesses in people to which the great healer, Jesus, was coming to heal. And like we talked about last week, this got people expectant, got them to hope again that the Messiah was coming. So, Again, and I'm just scratching the surface here, but despite at first glance what seems just like pure fire and brimstone, I think people were drawn to John's ministry because it spoke about real things and it spoke to their heart. And if you look closer, I think you see it really was good news in the sense that it actually benefited the people who listened. The products of listening to what John was talking about was revival and renewal. For people to actually listen to John, it meant that somebody who didn't have a coat got one. Somebody who didn't have food and who was struggling in a culture, somebody else who had more was going to give food to this person. It was beautiful. It meant people who were oppressing people and being dishonest in their work, oppressing folks who were in vulnerable situations under them, were going to stop. 
beautiful. And on top of everything, the people were getting ready for the Messiah to come, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. So this, this was good news. It was gospel. Now, what does it mean for us? Um, what can we take away from this interesting truth that Luke calls this ministry of John good news? I think we need to be reminded, brothers and sisters, that this is what it looks like to preach the gospel. This is good news. The call to repentance, truth-telling, Messiah proclaiming. This is what it looks like. These are central to the kingdom of God, and they're central to Jesus' ministry because John is just the opening act, right? He's the guy who's, who gets on first to lead the way for the ministry headliner, which is Jesus Christ. And what is Jesus' preaching replete with? The call to repentance, truth-telling, and Messiah proclaiming, even though he's talking about himself because he is the Messiah. So this is good news. And even though this sounds crazy, here's the second thing that we can pull from this passage. I think it is the thing that people are really hungry to hear. I think it's the thing that people are really hungry to hear And that can be really hard for us to imagine, but as it was in John's day, so it is in today's world. Because here's what we're tempted to do. We are tempted to find out what we can say and what we can't say. In order to not offend anybody, we want to find out what people want to hear, and then we, we try to say that thing, the lowest common denominator, right? I was thinking about John. Again, he's got Sadducees and Pharisees there, which if you were with us last year during the election season, we talked about how different those two sects in Judaism were. So that's like Republicans and Democrats. It's a bad analogy. Roman officials, rich, poor. He's got all these different people. And again, the culture in Jerusalem was a powder keg of political and religious you know, wars. And I imagine John, if he was trying to say, okay, what can I say that wouldn't offend the Sadducees wouldn't offend the Pharisees, wouldn't tick off Rome. You know, what's that middle thing that I can say perfectly in the middle? That sounds exhausting. But it is kind of what we end up doing, isn't it, in today's culture? It's like, okay, what can I say in the church or in my office or whatever that could, like, goes right in the middle? And even though that seems loving, I think it voids the gospel of its power. Because we end up recycling the platitudes of the world, but we stamp a Bible verse onto it and we call it a sermon or witnessing or whatever. And in turn, we do what Jeremiah says. We end up healing the wound of the people lightly. And again, when we do that, it's ultimately not what people need or I think deep down what they want to hear. I've had two interactions with friends of mine Um, who are not Christians and who are outside of the church, and both of them have left the church in some ways, but um, both of them had ended up going up to churches which, uh, you know, the the main priority was telling them what they wanted to hear. And one friend who completely left said, I'm just sick and tired of hearing what they think I want to hear. He literally said that, and so I left. I could tell you just are trying to tell me what I want to hear. Another person said, I got so tired of hearing I was amazing. (laughs) Like, I just went to church every week, and it was like, you're great. And it's just weird, it's backwards that somebody would articulate that. I want to hear what God has to say. 
is literally what the person who told me who'd been out of a church for 15 years. So here's what we have the opportunity to do. We have the opportunity to become a wilderness in our post-truth and polarized world where people can come to hear it straight. Amen? We have an opportunity to be a place that John was in, that was preparing the way for the Lord, separate, distinct, full of the fire of God and the Holy Spirit, where people in our post-truth and extremely polarized world can come to hear it straight. And one of the things, I, when you have more time to plan a sermon, you have fewer points because you get to polish it more and more. So I did not have time to do that. So here are five really quick application points. <laughs> uh, but I offer them as seeds, and maybe one for you has a, maybe one will sink in, but man, here's what I, here's what I want to develop from this, if, if we had more time, and we have all the time in the world. Um, but here are five quick just considerations about this that I think are significant about John's ministry and the good news here, and creating this space where we're creating a, an opportunity for people to come and hear the good news. Number one, the good news is both pastoral and prophetic. There are two ditches when it comes to Christian witness. One is that we abandon the prophetic in order to be pastoral. I don't want to hurt your feelings, so I'm not going to say the hard thing. That's a, that's a ditch. The other one is we abandoned the pastoral to be prophetic. We want to say the hard thing, and in the process, we end up stomping all over people very unhelpfully. But that's a false dichotomy. I think in Jesus and in John's ministry, we see both. And I say this up front because I think it's easy to misapply this passage or these truths as kind of a license to go on State Street and become a really abrasive stump preacher, right? This is not a license to be a jerk <laughs> without love. But I also think that if our church or our culture was in more danger, danger of ditching the prophetic or the pastoral, whatever, I think we are more in danger, potentially in Madison, of ditching the prophetic in order to be sensitive and pastoral. But it's both. They both go together. It's a part of witness is having a prophetic edge. It's what it means to preach the good news. Two, you notice in this, the good news is both deeply eternal and spiritual and also profoundly practical. Did you catch that? It's as big as eternal judgment. And yet, it gets down to the grain of, hey man, do you have two coats? That person doesn't have any. The implications of the good news is that you should share with him. It's kind of like a Rorschach test, I think, right? Which is the name for the splotch that you look at and you kind of interpret whatever you want to see. I find John's preaching is a Rorschach test for what you think the gospel's really about. It, look, it's all about eternal, the coming of Jesus and repentance and everything. And other people are like, no, look, it's so practical. It's so tangible. It's so, so much about social justice. But I think it's both here. I think it's good for us to, to be reminded of and see. Three, the good news is preached in an uncensored environment. The good news is preached in an uncensored environment in this passage. Here's what I mean by that. In both liberal and conservative bubble worlds, 
There are things you can say and there are things you can't say. Whether it's on TV or in an article or a book or even social media, you guys get this. You live through 2020 and 2021. And publishers and producers and social media influencers and editors are the gatekeepers of these worlds and what you can and can't say. And so everyone has to fall in line. And sadly, the church sometimes starts playing by those rules because we want to be accepted by the American culture, whether it's the left or the right. But there is something unique, I think, and we pointed this out last week, about how John's in the wilderness. He is not beholden to the Sadducees or the Pharisees or the Romans. And I think the church needs to be reminded that our job is to utter and speak the things that are precious to God and not the things that are precious to our culture. Amen? If I can be honest, this was one of the hardest things about 2020 and 21. I know it was hard for you too. It was hard for all of us at dinner tables and workplaces and cubicles, just knowing what to say and what you can't say. There were so many things, so many minefields that we were dancing around all the time. So many things, so many words even that got co-opted politically. Everything became political. And it got to the point that even something like prayers of the people in church ended up getting charged. Like there were only certain things we could pray for or how we could pray for something. And if we didn't pray using the right words, then it would be this massive issue. Brothers and sisters, we cannot let that happen in the church. Amen? We cannot let that happen in the church. We need to take the church back out into the wilderness, if you know what I mean. So that, so that we can be the prophetic and pastoral people that God has called us to be to the world. If the salt loses its saltiness, what's it worth, right? Again, this is the danger of going into dicey issues when you've not had much time to prepare. Two caveats about this. This doesn't mean we're not discerning. It doesn't mean we're not pastoral or empathetic in the way that we use language. It just means we're not beholden to the culture when it comes to defining our language and our way we speak and how we speak and what we do. We're beholden to the word of God. So the good news is preached in an uncensored environment. Number four, the good news that saved people is also the good news that got John jailed and eventually beheaded. This is an interesting one. We're tempted to think that rejection is a sign that we are doing something wrong. But in many ways, it's just the opposite. Our task is to preach the good news in all of its fullness And we've been promised, brothers and sisters, by Jesus and the scriptures that the result of preaching the good news in all its fullness will be both salvation and opposition. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men and women of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, 
we speak Christ. That's 2 Corinthians. Sometimes we think that the measure of true good news preaching is full-on acceptance, and so in order to not get rejected, we dilute the good news, but in so doing, again, we dilute the power of it, the gospel of its power. Brothers and sisters, the hard thing is also the thing that saves. The good news that saved people is also the good news that got John jailed and ultimately beheaded. It was true for Christ, and Jesus promised it would be true for the church. So rejection, opposition is not a sign of something wrong. Again, this is not a reason to be a jerk. But for John, the impetus, the goal was to preach the good news in its fullness, and the Holy Spirit worked through it. Last thing, number five, the purity and potency of the good news is what drew people to John, not strategy or flashy tactics. These are all individual sermons, but man, it's just interesting when you look at John's ministry, the thing that drew the people to him was not that he had awesome you know, lights and smoke and everything, uh, I don't think he had amazing props for his preaching. You know, I don't know how, like, what his bumper videos were and all that stuff. He preached the truth. He preached the good news in all its fullness. And the power was that. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, Paul says, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. We're tempted, I'm tempted to try and appeal to people through slick websites. Even though I love good slick websites, Caitlin and I have been working hard at Randy on our new website. I think it's slick. But we need to make sure we don't put our hope in our website, right? Our social media presence is dismal. Pretty much we have the worst social media of any church. That's okay. But that's not, that's not what draws people, Amen. John's ministry is a really helpful reminder that the cross of Christ and the gospel itself is what has power. It is the thing that has potency. Not any of us, not any of our eloquence or our music or who we are. It is about the gospel. The call to repentance, truth-telling, Messiah-proclaiming, So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. And I want to finish by reading the collect for the day again, because it was so beautiful as our closing prayer. Oh, Lord Jesus Christ, you sent your messengers, the prophets, to preach repentance and prepare the way for our salvation. Grant that the ministers and stewards of your mysteries, Lord Christ Church Madison, those of us in this room, may likewise make ready your way by turning the hearts of the disobedient toward the wisdom of the just, that at your second coming to judge the world, we may be found a people acceptable in your sight. For with the Father and the Holy Spirit, you live and reign one God, now and forever. 